You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. All right, I'm going to read Deuteronomy and then we're going to read today's gospel. Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you and a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach, everybody say teach. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. One of the ways that we know where our treasure lies is not just in our bank account or our calendar, but what dominates our conversations. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Pastor Bill's version, you should be obsessed with talking about how good God has been to you all of the time. And now would you prepare your hearts for today's gospel reading. A reading from the Gospel of Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to be among us and cultivate our hearts right now, Father God. I pray for any of us whose heart is like the trodden down soil. I pray that you would soften it. For any of us whose heart is like the shallow soil, I pray that you deepen it. For any of us whose heart is like the soil with all the thorns in it, I pray that you cultivate it so that we might produce a harvest 30, 60, or 100-fold. It's entirely up to you. But we pray that we would produce a harvest of learning and fruit to love our neighbor as ourself. In your name we pray. Amen. The title of today's sermon is called, You've Just Been Sunday Schooled. (laughs) This is going to be fun. We're going to be using the artwork from our children over the last few weeks to illustrate the sermon points for today. And I have to say this before I even start. I, and and Jacqueline, who's here with baby Theo in the back? Yo, can you all stop clapping so you don't wake him up, please? I'm saying like, shh, like what is, I don't come to your house and start clapping like crazy. Well, you know that song, that Christmas song, the, the, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, away in a manger. Like, how about, how about you tell the cattle to shut up for two seconds? The baby was just born. Don't do that song this year, John. I, one of, and if you are in public speaking at all, please hear me. 
the most important part of public speaking is intro and conclusion. Know where you want to end up and know how you want to start. The rest seems to take care of itself. I'm very, very big on the technique of knowing what is the introduction and what is the conclusion. Um, and I did not feel good about any introductions to this message because I couldn't feel, I, I didn't have the words of the vocabulary to explain to you how important the children of this church actually are. And, and I couldn't put into words the feeling I had. Like I could tell you all of the adult reasons why children are important and we know them, but it just didn't feel like it was gonna get there. So I asked Jacqueline to help me and she was like, I, I got thoughts, but they just, and so I finally said, you know what we're gonna do? An introduction will come to me during whenever when I need it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. And I this might not be a big deal to you. I'm a dork. You're a dork about something. I'm a dork about this. And I was just I didn't feel right about it. And then I was in the office before service, and I texted uh, my my good friend Dr. Chris Green, and I said, Hey, I'm gonna be doing something interesting. I'm gonna be preaching off of the art that our kids have drawn. And I showed it. I showed him every piece of art that we're going to go through, and I said what I wanted to say about it. And Chris says, I feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to tell you something. And he says this. He said, these pieces of art and your children are mirrors and windows. He said they're mirrors because in these pieces of art, you will see as a church and as parents how good you're actually doing in teaching them about Jesus. How many parents need to know that you're doing a good job once in a while because you feel like you're not almost all of the time? These are mirrors to show us how good we're actually doing at Salem Tabernacle, teaching our children about Jesus. And then he said, but they're also windows. They're windows because these pieces of art are showing us things that God wants to teach us that it's easier for him to tell the kids first. Yo, 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 yo. Mirrors to show us how good we're actually doing. Windows to show us what God wants us to learn that he can't tell us first because only a child's heart can say yes to it first. Are you ready for this? This is going to be interesting. I have them all right here. I feel like Jimmy Fallon or something. I got, I'm far funnier than he is anyway, so I don't, it's whatever. I want to start by saying that one of the reasons why we want to have this Bible study starting this Wednesday is because we absolutely need to be people who remember what it's like to walk in the Spirit. I don't know that I care if we can brand ourselves as a classic Pentecostal church or a liturgical church or an evangelical church because, uh, you know, one of my friends said to me, are you guys Roman Catholic or are you Pentecostal? And I said, it depends on what Sunday you show up here. Like, that's really the answer. Because we're called at Salem to be all things to all people. So I want us to be whatever the world needs us to be that Sunday for God's kingdom to come a little bit more that week. But that means that we have to actually be people who are professionals at all the different kinds of doing church, not just specializing in one, but knowing how to be all of these things. We have to know how to be contemplative and quiet, especially when Theo's here. We have to know how to witness. We have to know how to be people of the Spirit and to operate, especially on Sunday, in the gifts of the Spirit so we can operate in them well uh, in the, during the week. So while we are contemplating this, Levi Zrodlowski is sitting there and he starts drawing a picture a few Sundays ago. And he starts drawing a picture, Ian, you could put it up, of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And I thought, wow, is that like my broken foot? <laughs> my foot looked like that at one point. <laughs> So he writes this, he draws this picture at the beginning of the service. Towards the end of my sermon, being the sloppy preacher that I am, I go on a tangent because I never go on tangents. Everything is always organized with me. I go on a tangent about how authority, and maybe you remember this from two weeks ago, how authority is headship but Christ's head seems to always be down where our feet are. And I said, he's always washing our feet. So if you really want to be an authority, you're not an umbrella over somebody's life. You are a foot washer down at the bottom of somebody's life. 
He drew this picture first. How old is he? Eight. We're pretty sure he's eight. (laughs) He is eight years old and immediately said, Mom and Dad, I heard from God because I drew this picture before Pastor Bill preached it. It's a mirror to tell us how good we're doing and a window to tell us the kinds of people God wants us to be. Remember when you said something and then it got confirmed later? He wants us to be living in that reality all of the time. And he's letting our children go first. Mom and dad, cultivate it, but we also need to embody it. The Holy Spirit is talking to a, we're pretty sure, (laughs) eight-year-old. going to be nine. He's talking to our children. There's something amazing happening in this space. Mom and dad, thank you for fighting to bring your kids here because that story is not just for Levi. It's interesting that it happens to a Levi first because Levitical priests always go first to where the people are going to go second. Oh gosh. We're going we're gonna to get them going again. I mean, we don't need to watch Stephen Feardick TikToks to get people going. Like, we can do this too here. There's some amazing things happening in our children, and like we said, mirrors and windows. So this text, love your neighbor as yourself, very simple. Is it though? First of all, maybe some of us here don't love ourselves very much. We'll talk about that at the end. But I also feel like with Jesus, there's a hint of sarcasm when he says this, like, Man, if you would just love others the way that you love your own darn selves, I probably wouldn't have to go to the cross in a few days. Because when it comes to you messing up, man, when it comes to me messing up, I am an advocate for myself. I got reasons. I had a long day, a newborn baby, my foot fell off, like all this kind of stuff. But when you mess up, I don't love your mess up the way I love my mess ups. I talk to you about my, I get reasons for my mess-ups, but you have none. You never should have messed up once. And Jesus is saying, man, if you could just learn to love people the way you love yourself, then when people make mistakes, you'd give them a way out. You'd understand that maybe they're having a day that you don't know they're having. What's funny about this text is that before it, the Pharisees asked Jesus a whole bunch of questions trying to accuse him. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a culture that doesn't ask questions because the person asking questions want information. We have a culture that asks questions because we're trying to steer the conversation so we could say all of our favorite things. I mean, if me and you just agree with that, it's perfectly fine. But that's what we do. We ask questions so that we can create an opening so that we can say what we want to say. We ask questions to open doors so our opinion would be most needed. We ask questions to cut people down. We ask questions because we want to show somebody how dumb we think their opinion is. That's what they were doing to Jesus beforehand. And you know what the opposite of cynicism is? Laughter. Laughter. Look at the person next to you and say, I'm praying for you. Say this, I'm praying that you laugh more, but not the crazy bad day kind. We all know the laugh when you're about to kill somebody. That's not the kind of laugh we're talking about. We're talking about an actual laugh. We need to laugh more, especially when we don't understand something. How many people are married in the room? Can I see some hands? How many of those hands up have always understood your spouse? (laughs) Aldo, I know your spouse. There is no way even one time. You understood, Ruthie. We live not understanding. We just sang a song about the mysteries. Every one of our worship leaders today had a word telling us, you're just going to have to walk in mystery. And we treat the unknown with cynicism and not adventure anymore. Well, Alexander Allen drew a picture called, I am the bread of life. Jesus is dressed up as a piece of bread in this picture. (laughs) You know why this is hilarious to me? Yes, it's a, it's a mirror. You're Alan's, you're all doing a really good job, but it's also a window because when we introduced the Eucharist and we had the audacity to say that it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus, every kid understands that. Every kid could draw a picture of that. We needed to have 75 meetings to prove that we're not becoming Roman Catholic because adults don't laugh. We just get cynical and grouchy about stuff. 
But look at closely at this picture. The disciple, not the loaf of bread, the disciple first has a question mark above their head, indicating that they do not understand what they're seeing. Do you know when the Israelites first walked outside of their tents on manna morning number one, their first response was, what is it? And do you know in the Hebrew what they actually say is, who is it? It's the bread that came down from heaven. But above the question mark is ha! Because children don't get cynical when they don't understand something. They enjoy not understanding something because they know, now I'm going to have the gift of being surprised by something I didn't know before. Lord Jesus, give marriages the grace to have laughter be our default mode instead of cynicism. Can you imagine if when you weren't on the same page or even in the same book or even in the same library, husband and wife, instead of getting cynical, angry, and asking questions to prove how off your spouse is, we actually sat down and said, oh, this is going to be good. God is in the dissonance between me and you. God is going to show us something that neither of us knew before. Next week, a podcast comes out that I was interviewed on in Beacon, and I said some things, so everybody just, you can't put a microphone in front of my face, and I don't know what I'm about to be asked. But at the very beginning, they say, Reuben just got married. Do you have any advice for him? And I said, uh, my advice is uh, make sure that you're best friends with your spouse. He says, you're the first person to not give me the advice that my wife is always right. I said, she's not. And neither are you. We have to debunk the myth that when there's a marital argument, there's a right side. We make rightness happen when we work together to get to a conclusion, and we make wrongness happen when we try to prove that the other person is wrong. The newlywed claps first. My man, you're ahead of the game over there, brother. That's what this picture is showing. What is the Eucharist? What does it mean? Is it really, is it a symbol? Is it this? I don't know if I'm coming to this church anymore. And then some kid draws a picture where Jesus is literally bread with legs. He understands the Eucharist better than anybody else I've ever met. It doesn't matter what you think. It's alive. It works. It feeds you. And we can laugh. My daughter this week says this. I maybe picked that picture myself. I don't know. If Jesus is everywhere, then he's also in my laughter. I'm like, yeah, yeah that's, I'm like taking notes. I'm like, what is that again? If he's what? <laughs> everywhere, then he's, he's, he laughs. No, he's in. He's in your laughter. This is good. Do you have a source? <laughs> Just prayer? Just you, Sophia Evangeline. The funny thing is that Sophia didn't know I'm studying for this Corinthian Bible study, and I didn't see this guy's picture before. What a dork he is, but I'm sorry. <laughs> I was really disappointed. <laughs> he says, we say we break up laughing, or he exclaimed that a joke really cracked me up, or we report that the crowd erupted with laughter. Laughter shatters. It breaks up. It cracks up. It interrupts the neat totalities by which we often seek to control and make sense of our lives. If love is a car, then laughter is the oil change. It keeps... See, here's the thing. If you don't change the oil in your car, your car will break the more it works right. The car will function the way it's supposed to, and the more it functions the way it's supposed to without oil in it, the way it's supposed to function will break it. It won't work precisely because it's working right without oil. Without laughter, we can do all the right things, and the grind of life, the grind of doing things right will wear us down to a nub. How do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? How do you love your neighbor as yourself? You know that you fall in love with the God who laughs. The God who enjoys. The God who enjoys whether things are correct or not. You ever get your whole house clean and then you enjoy yourself? You ever want to enjoy yourself and say, I can't until I get this clean and then you start, I'm just going to clean up the one room and then I'll feel better to sit down and read my book. That book never gets cracked open. The glass of wine, I mean, the cup of coffee just sits there. 
Can I tell them what happened this morning? I'm going to. Ian is getting uh, the Eucharist ready, and he says to Levi, there's, there's, can you put the wine in it? Because I'm the only one having it right now, so whatever. Judge me. <laughs> Levi says, oh no, this is going to be bad. <laughs> Ian says, I'm just sitting right here. Ian says, Pastor, please don't judge me for the fact that my kid knows when wine comes out, things go horribly wrong. <laughs> Is laughter good? We need to laugh more. It's actually romantic. It's how we love. If you've been, oh, oof, I'm going to do a marriage seminar all of a sudden about how you have to date in your own house before you date out of your house. But that, I'll, I'll, we'll save that. But laughter is important. Laugh with your spouse. Laugh with your best friends. Laugh with your children. Laugh with your boyfriend or girlfriend. If you can't laugh, you're going to have trouble loving the, for the long haul. Laughter is so unbelievably important especially when you're your bad day self. Your bad day self needs to laugh. Can't just laugh when you're your best self. Your best self is already your best self. It doesn't need to laugh as much as your terrible grouchy self needs to laugh. All right. We'll move on. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Unfortunately, well, what we need to know is love is defined by love. That sounds simple. But we have defined loving God, we've defined how well we love God by the times that we have failed to love him. We are obsessed with talking about the way we've broken a fast, the way that we've messed up. We love degrading, our, I'm not worthy, oh, such a worm as I. We are inclined to talk more about how wrong we get it and assume that the more right we get it, the more we love him. And this is simply not the kind of love that Jesus wants you to have for him because he's not the kind of person who's more appeased by you whether you get it, if you get it right or wrong. But here's the problem. When we define our relationship with God by how wrong we've gotten it, and we love our neighbor as ourself, we tend to teach people that they're only as valuable as the last time they got something right or wrong. So we're, we're more obsessed with sin than we are with grace. We're more obsessed with mercy than we are with grace, than we are with forgiveness. Like N.T. Wright says, we always talk about what God has saved us from, but we've never had the vocabulary to talk about what he has saved us for. He didn't save us from hell as much as he saved us for the kingdom of God. But if I have a from mentality, I'll always be looking at hell as the dominant factor in my theology, and I'll always see Jesus as defined by plucking me up out of my sin and death and hell. But hell will be the way that I understand him, and then that will be the way I teach other people to love. But when we realize that he saved us for the kingdom, for the fruit of the Spirit, for justice and equity and mercy, to, to give voice to the voiceless, to hold up the, the fatherless, to maintain the cause of the widow. When we realize he saved us for those things, hell's there, but it's way in my rearview mirror. I'm now focusing on all of the good things that God has saved me for, and then I teach people to love that way. So... A friend of mine who was visiting, his son is named Jace, he drew a picture. And in this picture, I looked at it for a while and I realized I don't know if he drew four different trees or the evolution of one. You got to learn from your children, read into what they say, ponder it for a little while. It's really wrong of us if we ponder the breaking news on our phone more than we ponder the little things that our kids say. So I looked at this for a while. You realize there's a few trees in this picture, and they're kind of in process. But the second to last tree looks like it had kind of a bad day. It doesn't look like its best day was that day. And then I noticed that the angle of the sun shining down on it is angled in the progression of the trees. Do you see this? Because God's mercy, his love doesn't just shine down on that fully mature tree. It shines through the entire process of all of your ups and downs. 
It shines through the entire process of your process. It shines over all of the success and the failure, the days that you've been ravaged by storms, the days where you just didn't do what you were supposed to do and you were the cause of your own darn storm. It shines, it angles itself all the way through our process. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as God loves you. Love them through their process. Don't just have an outcome-oriented love. Because I'm telling you right now, God does not have an outcome-oriented love over your life. His love is not angled towards only those days that you're at your best. And as much as we've heard this before, I'm telling you right now, what did Kerry say? I need to hear it again and again and again and again and again and again before I finally have the ability and the confidence to do it. We stop. What she said is brilliant. What Kerry just said was, I need to hear it over and over and over again until I know I can do it. We say, I need to hear it over and over again until I understand it. And we have built up a dam between our understanding and our loving actions. Kerry understands, love your neighbor as yourself. But like all of us, we need to hear it over and over and over again to do it. Our love should angle over the whole process of somebody's life. But do you notice where the light, imagine the light is mercy and grace. Notice where the light, the tree the light is closest to. The light is closest to the most successful part of the tree. We act like when we're in our immature phases, we need mercy and grace. You know what? I've made most of my worst mistakes when I've lived in my maturity the wrong way. We think we need grace to get through poverty. You need so much more grace to get through having a ton of money. Let me tell you, I've been not worse than a lot of people, but I've been down and out now for over a year. I haven't been able to live a normal life, and I realize I have been, this is true, I have been my best self the more I've lived into this injury. It's when I've been perfectly healthy that I've needed to burn through more grace because when I'm perfectly healthy, my desire and demand on the Holy Spirit is far less. I've lived better hurt than I have healthy. Because, so now I'm saying, when I saw this picture, I thought of myself, I am like six weeks away from being able to walk normally again. And I said, Lord, when I'm finally back and healthy, I need that light a lot closer to my life because that's where I messed it up the last time. These kids... These kids, we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep going. We're not going to keep going. Mom and dad, the Bible said in Deuteronomy to talk about these things. It says to do them yourself and to teach and talk about them to your children. To the adults, he says, I've given you these commandments to do them. But when it comes to children, he said, I've given you the commandment to teach and to talk about them. Not to tell them to do them, but to teach them and talk about them. And to teach through talking, implicit in that command is the command for us to be good listeners when our children are talking and not angle the day so that we could get them. And I'm talking to families who have younger kids. That to angle the day, to get them occupied so we can get them to the end of the day so we could finally have time. It's to fully realize, and I'm, I'm trying to do this in my life, and it's not exactly easy. When I, when I first started dating Jacqueline 16 years ago, 16 years we have been together. <laughs> she, that sunshine has been angling on her life with grace and mercy, let me tell you. When I first walked into the family, there's, uh, there's like 3,000 children in that family. There's two of every kind of everything in that arc that I went into. And one of the things I loved, one of the things that really caught my eye, and this is, this is way before I ever even knew that I wanted to get married, let alone have kids, I saw my father-in-law, he would always be like finishing up work or doing like household bills, that kind of stuff, on his laptop, sitting on a couch with all of these children climbing all over his body. And he'd just be sitting there, 
And it's all going crazy. Cheryl's cooking. Everyone's running around. Like, it is, I'm sitting there like, I, I mean, I, granted, I grew up with Christy and Katie, which felt like 3,000 children in the room. <laughs> That's an entirely different story. And if you're watching, you know. I was the calm one, the mature one. And I just remember thinking, here's what I, here, and I, I've, I've thought about this more now recently that, that we've like doubled our children here, is that they're, there's this mentality that says I have to get to the end of the day so like I can do me, right? Like so I can have my time. But what I realize now is that what, what, what the end of my day, the joy of my day is now sitting in the living room and seeing at the end of all of this crazy work day the teeming life that's now around, right? That is itself a reward. We need to sit in the chaos, and not just try to push the chaos through bedtime routines, through bath routines, through like quick Bible stories, maybe a spanking or two, and then get them to bed. We have to sit in the chaos and realize Jesus loves it here. All, all Jesus ever does is sit in the chaos. We've never been calm. We, if, if, if Salem Tabernacle represents all the churches, we've never been normal. We've never been calm. We've, every pastor that's ever pastored here has never been able to figure you all out, ever. Jesus only sits calmly in the chaos with us. He just enjoys the tumult of our life knowing it's happening around him. Right? And so don't, we, we can't discipline, especially our young kids, we can't discipline if while we're punishing them, we're using the phrase, you need to understand. You can't say you need to understand and discipline at the same time. You can only discipline those things that you know are already understood. If you're confident they don't understand, then punishment is not the way to go. Teaching is. Teaching at a cost to you, your time, the Knicks game, who are playing dope basketball right now. It's about time one of my teams did something. Because the Giants, nope, forever no. Forever, they will never be good again. Ever once. I will never see another winning season as long as I live on this earth. Levi is a Rams fan. And on the day that he heard from the Lord, sent me a picture of him going like this when they were beating us 38 to 11. I love you, man. We have to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and understand our primary job is to talk and to teach. And to talk and teach, you need to be involved and you need to have ears to hear those quick little moments when one of your kids says, where is God? And you're like, I have no idea, but I can't say that because I'm a pastor. He's everywhere. Oh, so he's standing in my room right now? Yes, that's scary. He's not really standing in your room, so he's not there. Sophia, stop. You're confusing me now. He's in my laughter. Oh, I, I don't want to miss those moments. I want to write them down and preach off of them and live off of them. Because, raise your hand if you're part of the body of Christ. Right now, everybody put your hands up. So if you're the body of Christ and you're listening to a sermon, then that means Jesus is learning in this moment which means Jesus learns from his kids. Jesus doesn't just teach, he learns. Well, where does Jesus learn? Whenever we learn, Jesus is learning because we are the body of? If he can learn from his kids, we should also. Okay, now moving on. This love, love your neighbor as yourself. One thing we have to understand about love is love is not useful and love is not productive. See, in our culture, we gravitate to things that are useful and productive, and we kind of seen as lesser those things that just are good on their own, but they don't immediately, like, like people have said to me, Pastor, can you please preach a Monday morning kind of sermon? No. No. Especially if you ask me to. Well, you know, it's like, I don't always know how to apply. That's good. Let some things be transcendent. We can't use everything. Whenever you use something, you also wear it out. <laughs> Remember when we were kids, we got those new sneakers and you couldn't imagine what they would look like dirty and then three days later, right? Like when we use things, we wear them out. 
We say things like, God, I just want you to use me. He doesn't use us. He brings us into what he's doing. We're not useful to God. Abusive people use people. God invites us into what he's doing. We become co-operators with him. It's far beyond use. Love is not productive. When the man, when, when the man hears Jesus, he says, oh my gosh, loving your neighbor as yourself, he says this, is better than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now this is, an, uh, this is a second temple Judaism moment, but when I talk to people right here in this church, if I ask most people in this room, when were you your most on fire for God? Odds are your answer will include a time that you were running a Bible study in charge of a ministry or doing something for other people where like you had to like come up with a plan and do things and function in things. Nobody ever says I'm my most on fire for God when I just have people over for dinner. It's always when I'm teaching or prophesying or running this or doing that or running this ministry or this mission or this backpack giveaway. Like those things are good. How many know that I'm not saying those things aren't good? But when our, when our sense of being on fire is only ever rooted in times that we're producing, we're going to burn ourselves the out. Because Jesus is most on fire whenever he's alive which is forever. His being in the world is what turns him on the most. Whether it's mustard seed or you, Jesus is excited by it. Jesus is as excited when they're handing him the scroll of Isaiah in the temple as he is when he's by himself, as he is when they're just sitting in a tent talking about whatever. When we associate being productive with feeling the closest to God, we're idolizing a very new world, a very secular reality that I'm my best self when I'm producing something that I can measure. God's love is so much better than that, Salem. When you can get swept away driving your car just because you had a memory. And like, you ever get someplace and you're like, how'd I get here? I've been thinking quite a bit. Everybody's looking at me like I do. No, I'm talking about deep thought. I'm not talking about any other stupid things you can be doing when you're driving. I'm saying deep thoughts. And you're just so intent that you're like, I've just been driving. Like, I've, go, I've gone to the city like 37 times because of my foot. One time I got to the very end of the Palisades and I was just like, I woke up and I was like, wait a minute. I haven't been paying attention. Hope everybody's okay that's been driving next to me. Because there's times where you, you just get lost. You just get lost in a, in a moment where like, you just happen to be walking by your window, cleaning your house, and you just see a bird land, and right away, God draws you into his life. You're not being productive in that moment. You're not being useful in that moment. He's just drawing you in with his attractiveness into your life. Look at this next picture. This is by Josh Allen. Yes, the Allens are better than everybody. Their kids have all the pictures in here. I thought this picture was amazing for one specific reason. The kid looking up at the tree, this is called I'm the bread of life. The kid is looking up at the tree saying yay, but the kid doesn't have an apple in his hand. This is coming from the imagination of a child, a pure and perfect imagination. He's saying yay, but he's not eating the fruit from the tree. He's not getting something out of it. He's saying yay because the tree's doing what it's supposed to be doing, and he's excited that something is happening just the way it's supposed to be, even if he's not benefiting from it in a measurable way. Can you imagine if you were excited about your coworker's promotion even if you didn't get one? Can you imagine if you were excited because your best friend finally is getting married? And you're not. Can you imagine being excited if you see somebody who's not married and you are? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, all of these things. <laughs> imagine being able to be satisfied that something good is happening in the world, even if it's not happening to you. Imagine the kind of not high-maintenance person you would be if you could just be excited because fruit is being bore somewhere, even if it's not happening in your life. I went to Sophia's trunk or treat at her elementary school and I was mad at everybody who could walk. 
and I heard them complaining. Oh my God, this is such a long walk. It's such a long walk. Look at me. Can an armpit fall off? Enjoy the fact. And so I'm sitting there like, Lord, I am so grateful that these people can just have a normal life. And, and my, you're, 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 when you first do that prayer, you're not being serious. You all know that you, pr- you thank God for somebody that somebody else got, and you weren't being serious. I'm so happy they got a new car. Lord, I'm just so happy that they were able to pay for it in cash and that they have good credit. You're not serious. But keep disciplining yourself because we want to be... The, th- that kid in that picture is not high maintenance at all. He's happy because happy things are happening even if they're not happening to him. That's a Christian life. Weep with those who weep even if the weeping isn't happening to you. And rejoice with those who rejoice even if the object of the rejoicing isn't happening to you. Because this is how God loves us. He's happy when you're alive. Even if he's not eating the fruit of the Spirit off your life, which I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, I feel more like that cursed fig tree than I do the tree in this picture. But he's happy just because there's good to be happy about. Sometimes we're so adult, we can only enjoy things or weep over things if we have a reason to. But sometimes the deepest level of being in the Holy Spirit is being happy when you don't have a reason to. Or waking up sad and off and saying, I must be praying for somebody somewhere because I don't have a reason to feel this way. But what do we do? No. When we wake up happy, we assume we've done something right. And when we wake up off, we assume we've done something wrong because our world is at the center of our world. But if we're really living in Jesus, we might wake up happy just because Jesus is happy that something in Lebanon just happened good. This is over our head. These pictures are over our head. These are things only children can truly grapple with and understand. Yay. You're not eating an apple. You couldn't even reach an apple. Look at that. There isn't a ladder in the world. Ian, one of Tim Bynum's ladders couldn't get up into that tree. The lift that you used to paint up there. He, I don't, I don't, it's not about me having an apple. Look at the tree. The tree's doing what it's supposed to do. And what is the title of this? I am the bread of life. This kid is eating happiness. The bread is that something good is happening in the world, and he's feeding off of that. We can do this. If we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Final thing I want to talk about. This is great. Love. Oh, everybody. Especially if you grew up in the church for a long time. You ready? Love is not competitive. I actually had a person in the last four years of my life come to me and say, Pastor, can you please teach me how to love my son less? I love him more than God. And I said, hold on, I need to call Brother Randy. (laughs) Well, the Bible says, unless you love your family more than me. And I said, I said, Brother Randy, I know that that idea that I love my family too much, I know that can't be right. But Jesus does kind of get so close to that, it sounds like that's what he's saying. Unless you love me more, right? Like, that's something that selfish people say. We sometimes say it backwards, especially when we're being abusive. If you loved me, you would have dot, dot, dot. Brother Randy says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And every time he does that, I'm like, I know you know the answer. Stop acting like you're thinking. Say it. Say it now. And he says, Jesus speaks to us first about love using competitive terminology because he knows that's all we understand. But by the end, in the Eucharist, He's talking to us in mature language, talking about just giving, just sharing. He said he starts talking to us using competitive language because we were at the place, his disciples were at the place where that's all they understood. But by the end, he's saying, this is my body offered for you. No competition, it's just given. 
I said, oh, yeah, yeah, Brother Randy, that's what I had. I just wanted to make sure, like, what my notes and your notes were. There is no competition between love. If you love yourself, you love God and you love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you love yourself and you love God. And if you love God, you love yourself and your neighbor. There's no difference. Because in the Trinity, in the economy of the Trinity, there's only sharing love. Competition doesn't share anything. Competition takes until it wins. But in the economy of the Trinity, there's only shared love. If, so the, question, the, the reality isn't you need to love your kids less or try to love God more. The answer is you need, we need to love our children with the love that God gives us to love them with. We don't have to try. Oh my, how do I love Theo less? He's perfect. How do I love him less? How do we have you, Ian, put the Sophia picture back up there again real fast. How do I love Sophia less? What does it mean to try to love God more? Or so, do, you, do we even know how to love God at all first? And then we have to try to love him more than that? You can't. That's not what they're saying. Jesus is saying, when you love me, I give you a love that you can love the world with well. Love them with my love, not with your lust. That's what he's saying. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. When he first loved us, we were graced and gifted with love to love back. We don't have to compete. We don't, oh my God, I love baseball more than God. He's saying, no, receive my love. And then love the world with that love. When we, when, when we say, I love something more than God, what we're really saying is, I don't love that thing at all. When we say we love something more than God, what we're really saying is we don't have any love for that thing. Because the only way we could love something ever is if we love it with the love God gives us to love it with because he is love and nothing else is. So look at the picture that Lydia drew. I love the way that tree looks. It's so happy. This is called, I am the light of the world. And I'm like, where's the sun? Where's the flashlight? I don't see anything. And then I read in a book you all should have read because it's out there in the media center by Rowan Williams called Being Disciples. Rowan Williams talks about when he met Desmond Tutu. And he heard all about his sufferings and all about the things he went through. And he got on the plane and he wrote down in his journal, here's one thing I've learned about Desmond Tutu. He loves being Desmond Tutu. And he wrote an article on good ego and bad ego. We've only heard about, and we've assumed that all ego is bad. But when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit, the word my is ego. So Jesus had a good ego. What is the difference between a good ego and a bad ego? A bad ego is when I need to feel good about myself, so I take good from you to promote my own self. But a good ego is when I'm just happy being me with nothing going on besides what's happening now. You're all looking at me like you're waiting to hear something cooler. Here's the thing. Do you know how well, we could talk about that for the next 365 Sundays? Children know how to just be happy being them. They learn to be unhappy with themselves. They're born perfectly fine. Theo doesn't care. Just go to the bathroom wherever. He's happy to be himself. <laughs> this, the light of the world in this picture is that the tree is happy just because it's a tree. That is the light of the world. Do you want to be light at a party? Do you want to be light at a gathering? And I know where this is going, and I'm sensitive to how this might be making somebody feel, so let the tension build. But you can be the light of the world when you're just happy being you. And you don't need another vacation, another camping trip. People tell me that I've been harping on camping trips too much. And so when you tell me that, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to harp on camping trips. So here's the new rule. We're now allowed to celebrate Halloween, but we're not allowed to go camping. It's the devil's <laughs> site. Campers are from the devil. 
They're like homes without commitment. <laughs> that was good, though. I'm just kidding. They're not. They're not evil. They're just bad. Just being happy, being you. Here's the thing. We can only learn that from children. We can only learn that from children. Sophia is obnoxiously happy being herself. She could be herself and happy with it at 2 p.m. and 2 a.m. <laughs> just happy being herself. What we do as adults is we ruin that. We have to add so much to be happy with who we are. We have to take away so much just to be happy. There's nothing else in this picture besides the tree being all happy. There's not another tree in it holding its branch hands. It's just the tree being happy, and that is the light of the world. This is one of the most important pictures I've ever seen. This is the light of the world. Liking yourself. Stuart Walker loves himself. I want to love myself the way Stuart loves himself. You know what? He's very generous with himself, but he's also extremely generous with all of us, all of the time. It's simple. Yes, it's simple. And I know I'm not... I'm very... Like, when I was writing these notes... I was very nervous that I was about to step on some toes. So here's the final thing. Some of us here are just simply saying, Pastor, I don't want to love my neighbor like myself. John, you can come on up. We have 15 more minutes, so you can start coming on up now. <laughs> Listen, man, I've been out for four weeks, and I've seen you skedaddle right on up there real fast. So I know it's just me. You don't do this to anybody else. You got up there for Mark. You flew up there for Pastor Mark. Just on your toes, just right up there. I was at home, I almost broke my other foot, kicking my TV over. So fast. <laughs> Sometimes we just don't like ourselves, And some of us have moments like that, I have moments like that. My issues are in other areas. I have moments where I don't like myself, but overall, I do. Some of us are stuck, just constantly guilty about who we are and how we're doing in life. And so, how do I love my neighbor as myself when I hate myself? Marcella and I were texting about this because as simple as these verses are, we realize how each of these sentences and these simple lines of Jesus weigh 30, they're like black holes. They weigh, they weigh infinite amount of weight, even though they seem so simple. And, and I'm wrapping up right now. I know we have the kids in the room and it looks like the foyer is getting nuts. So we're, we're wrapping up right now. To love someone is to let them be their true self. Okay? To love somebody is to be in their life in a way where you provide the conditions necessary for them to be their true self. My mom has loved me so well that she always knew what I'm doing right now, this was my true self. Even when I was far away from my true self, my mom and dad provided the conditions in the home that made it hard for me to not be this and easy for me to come back to it. Loving someone means being a condition in their life that helps them be their true self. So loving God means being a person who lets God be his true self. Well, what is his true self? God is love. So God's true self is loving you. So when we let God be his true self, we have to let him love us. So loving God is actually letting him love you. That's how we love him. That's all God ever wants to be is the lover of your soul. That's all he wants to be. He doesn't want to be anything else other than the lover of your soul. So look at this final picture as we get ready to come to the table. This is written by Jake Ulrich. 
It's God bringing people to his table. You ready to get some chills? Some of you are going to get chills or get angry at me. Both of them I love. God is bringing people to his table where there's good food. Do you see that? Behind God are three people who look like they got their life together. They're walking on green pastures. They're following Jesus. They're coming to the table. But if you look up in the clouds, I think he drew me. Coming down from the clouds is somebody who just doesn't seem like they have it together. Have you ever had an upside down day? Can I get a witness from somebody? Have you ever felt like right side up was upside down? But what is happening here? God's love is not just for those three people behind him, but his love is drawing your upside down broken self down to the table also. He's drawing your bad day self to his table and the person coming down doesn't look better. They're disheveled, but he's bringing your disheveled self to the table. He's, bring, he's not saying get the right garments on. He's saying come as you But even more than this, are you ready? In this picture, in the very middle of the frame, he drew earth. Do you see the green pastures? He drew heaven. Do you see somebody being pulled down from heaven? He also drew hell without realizing it. But hell has a new name now. Because the love of God even descends that far. And in place of the word hell, the underworld is now called friend. This boy just prophesied. This boy just prophesied. Whether you're on your game this morning, let's stand to our feet this morning. Whether you're on your game and you're following Jesus, Peter, James, and John style in green pastures, whether you're a disheveled, upside-down version of who you think you should be, or even if you feel like you're just down in the darkness of hell's flames and you've done nothing right, his love. What does it say in Philippians? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will get you with his love wherever you are and you'll be able to love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know why? Here's the, here's the final line. Yourself has a title and the title is loved. That's who you are. You're loved. Whether you're disheveled, on point, or down in the depths, you are loved and you can love your neighbor as yourself. So as we get ready to come to the table, if you want to come and get bread from up here, please do not open the uh, cups. If you feel more comfortable uh, being in your seats, please remain there and you can use the cups. If you want to come get bread from me, um, then, then please feel comfortable doing that. Aldo, can you please hand me the chalice and please don't spill Jesus all over the floor. Don't spill Jesus. It's hard to recover from that. Just kidding. I'm kidding. Everyone's so mad again. This is what love sounds like. On the night when he was betrayed, on the night when he was not loved and we were upside down, totally not ourselves, our Lord took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to all the unlovely people, this is my body, which is given for you. As often as you come to this table, I want you to feed on the memory that I have loved you, that you are a lovable person, that your life is worthy of being loved and you deserve heaven more than you deserve everything else, no matter what darkness tells you. When that person thought that he wasn't worthy to have Jesus come under his roof, Jesus was already on the way to his house. Jesus never questions our worthiness once. He's on, we tell him to stop coming because we feel unworthy. He was halfway there. He offers himself to what you feel like is ugliness. He finds it beautiful. What you feel is worthless, he finds it so lovable. 
what you think is failure, he sees you as so lovable. And after supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The old one just points the finger. The new one says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink, drink this in remembrance of me. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, give us childlike imagination right now. We pray that you would descend on this bread and this cup and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray, Father God, that you would sanctify us also. Forgive us of our sins for what we've done and for what we've left undone in thought, word, and deed. Heal us and bring us to a place where we can be happy just being who we are because it's in you that we live and move and have our being. Touch us, living God, this morning. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. If you would like to come and receive, you can. If you would like to take communion right where you are, you can. The worship team is going to minister. Come to the table of the Lord this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.